Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, uh, joined today in another Intimates podcast by uh, just Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil Oakley? Uh, all right, thanks, John. Yes. Excellent. Well, uh, yeah, it's good to have you. Uh, we haven't had you on the podcast yet this year. Uh, no, I've been living a reclusive lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. But there's been uh, lots going on and you've, uh, you've, you've made up for borrowed time this week with um, an absolutely bumper edition of your uh, Alpha weekly roundup and we'll talk to you some of the companies on there you've written us a nice big long column on uh, SSE um, which on the subject of dividend investing which is also something that you touch on in your alpha weekly roundup let's start with that dividends yeah income yeah what's what's your thesis here I think I think the thing that could sort of strikes me is actually how how the UK stock market everyone seems on such a downer about the UK maybe rightly or wrongly but um, I think if you just take a step back and look at the the hard facts that are staring in the face that the the UK stock market actually looks quite a good place for income seekers, probably the best I've seen it for quite some time. Yeah, and and, and your view of this is informed mainly by the, the sort of headline uh, yield that you're getting off the FTSE 100. Yeah, I mean, you know, the FTSE 100 has a lot of critics. Um, due to its makeup, due to the size of the companies in there, and I fully accept that. But we still live in a world where income and reliable income is actually quite scarce. And I, I'm just looking at it from the sort of the viewpoint of the investor who's looking at um, a way of getting a fair. You know, there's no free lunches out there, but looking at a a reliable source of, of income from their from their savings and from their investments and think that the the FTSE 100, FTSE 100 which you know it might not make you a lot in, ter- in terms of capital appreciation and hasn't made you a lot in terms of capital appreciation over the last 20 years but um, the dividend income and, and the makeup of the index is compared to what it has been in the past just strikes me as being quite attractive yeah i mean what one of the uh stories we've got in the uh magazine this week in fact it's in the uh not in the news section but in the uh share section the taking stock column written this week by emma powell is looking at uh, a report this week on the level the absolute level of uh uk dividend payments in 2018 and i mean it's a record approaching 100 billion yeah. It's a good place to, to find income. Yeah. Now, now the the uh, kind of message behind this piece is that perhaps that won't repeat itself next year. Um, but the forecast from uh, Link Asset Services is that it will. Um, and in fact, there's been a lot of negativity towards the, the, this, uh, this measure recently anyway. I mean, the level of dividends this year has, has surprised a number of people. Some of it's special dividends. Yeah. Um, but but actually, um, yeah, there there is a lot of uh, income coming out of these big companies that we're talking about. You've looked at one of them in your column this week, SSE, for example. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing that you know a lot of sort of particularly big you know beginning investors they can get sucked in by by the dividend yield, and and the thing to always bear in mind is the sustainability of that dividend. Can the company keep paying the dividend, and then also the level of the level of dividend growth. And if you look at look at investing over any sort of reliable long term uh, horizon, dividend growth is 
as important, if not more important, than the actual level of, of yield that you're getting. So you have to consider the safety and the ability of the dividend to grow. And that's what I've sort of talked about with uh, with SSE this week, which is a, a company that has a very, very big dividend yield of, of approaching 9%. Yeah, they call it sort of danger level dividend yield, you would think. Yeah, I think once you get over sort of 6 7%, that's that's telling you that there are doubts, unless of course that is topped up by. And that's you know sometimes you get very high dividend yields because people have factored in a special payout. You have to check that out because it's not always clear. But the, I mean, this is the, the the regular dividends we're talking about. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think, I think if you're looking at the yield on the regular annual dividend, once you're getting over six seven percent, essentially what. What the what's what you're being told with that is that the the market has serious issues on the ability of that dividend to keep being paid or grow, and with SSE they're absolutely right. In fact, in fact, the company's already said that it's going to cut its dividend. So this is a company that has grown its dividend pretty much since the company was privatised nearly thirty years ago. Started off as Southern Electric merged with Scottish Hydro to become uh, Scottish and Southern Energy and then just changed its name to SSE for short. And it has been very, very successful at um, investing money, growing its profits and growing its dividend. But for the, certainly for the last four or five years, all the signs have been there that this is a dividend that's been living on borrowed time because the company has... Par- ploughed its money into quite unreliable investments over the last decade, particularly traditional like coal-fired, gas-fired power generation. And that market is slowly dying. So the company's invested billions of pounds and seen its debt go through the roof and actually not seen its profits move that much upwards. And so They've been increasing the dividend, but the dividend cover, the ability of the profits to pay the dividend, has been getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And now that's given way. The company realised initially through the selling of its energy supply business, or it was trying to trying to merge its energy supply business with M-Powers. That's now fallen through, but essentially that was just a, a red herring. The company was paying an unsustainable dividend and is now having to cut it. And the question is now then, has it has it cut it enough so that it can start growing it again, or is it gonna to have to cut it again? But I guess I guess then there's a question of even if it has to cut it again, are you still buying the shares today, getting a decent return on those shares uh, in the form of dividends? And you potentially are. Yeah, you are, you are, but you are facing a number of risks because of the makeup of the business and and if you look at the the actual makeup of this business there are two things which really drive the ability of this company to pay a dividend one is the investment in its electricity and gas network so shifting gas and electricity around from power stations or gas fields into people's homes into businesses that's a regulated business now, the plus side of having a regulated business is that you make investments. The regulator says that you can earn a certain amount of interest or return on that, and therefore you get the predictability. But you only get that predictability for a short period of time, 
can be five years, can be seven or eight years sometimes. And then what happens is the regulator looks at it again and says, you're earning too much money here. Um, You're borrowing very cheaply. You're making excess returns in my point. And I'm going to cut that and I'll give some of that money back to customers. And and obviously businesses like SSE, like Centrica, have obviously come under the spotlight over the last couple of years in terms of the way they're treating their customers and... Uh, there's a lot of political pressure here. Yeah. And that political risk, uh, I, I guess, is magnified. Uh, and, and perhaps the reason why these shares are so unpopular is that the risk is magnified by the potential of a, a Labour government, for example, the, yeah. which, which we may get or may not in the next couple of years, to really start putting putting the kibosh on, you know, on, on these businesses. Well, I think you've got a Conservative government that's already... It's already doing it. Already done it with a, with, Absolutely. With a, with a, with a price cap quite clear now that supplying gas and electricity to households is a horrible business there's there's very little profit in it sse has signaled very clearly that it doesn't really want to own this type of business one of the big rationales for owning this business in the first place was if you had a lot of customers you had a natural hedge for the power generation from your gas-fired and coal-fired power stations those power stations are now pretty much redundant apart from being called on now and again to keep the lights on when the wind doesn't blow and when the nuclear power stations are on, on sort of maintenance outages and 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 we obviously we uh we have some real problems around the uh the, the development of of the nuclear generation yeah. base in this country and we saw a couple of uh quite high profile exits from from uh new projects over the past you know yeah. certainly one one in the last week or so one not too long before that yeah and this this all boils down to the fact that for years in this country in my opinion the generators have been able to use 20, 30, sometimes 40-year-old power stations that are pretty much fully written off on their balance sheets and run them as cash cows. And this has sort of flattered their financial performance in terms of what they would be able to make on the current power price against the replacement cost of building a brand new power station today. And these things aren't cheap. These things aren't cheap. You see them with Hinkley Point. You know, Hinkley Point is is the power station that EDF and the Chinese are involved with, and they want double the current power price just to even build it, which mm. is about ninety pounds per megawatt hour. So the current spot price is you know there or thereabouts, sort of forty five pounds a megawatt hour. And SSE's part in this is that it's been ploughing loads of money into wind, onshore, offshore wind, and the economics of wind have, have actually got a lot more favourable in that the cost of actually putting these things in the ground has come down a lot. So the level of subsidy you need to make them economic has come down. You still need some sort of subsidy, but they have become better. The problem is is that you only make money when the wind blows, and so therefore you have a very volatile, unpredictable earnings stream. And so SSE is facing up to the fact if you look where it's sinking its money it's sinking its money into a regulated business where the regulator if you look at certainly look at what national grid where Ofgem, the regulator came to national grid not so long ago and said we're going to give you a four percent 
real after-tax return on your investment, which was made a lot of people wince. Saw the share price of National Grid sell off because people thought that was for, for people to take equity risk for that rate. Is that is that high enough? Probably not. And you can see that Ofgem is under a lot of political pressure to redress the balance away from shareholders to consumers and use the argument that borrowing is cheap to reduce prices. And that's a big problem for SSE in terms of the ability to grow its profits, grow its cash flows, so that it can keep on paying and increasing its dividend by at least the rate of inflation. And then you add on to that the fact that it's sunk a load of, a load of money into wind farms where there is volatility in the profits and the cash flows depending on what the weather's like. To basically sum up, you've come to a conclusion that even after this cut, so it's going to pay 97 pence dividend per share for the year ending March this year. The plan so far is to cut that back to 80 next year, but even on 80, it's quite a close call. I think if it can get it get it right, then the shares are arguably too cheap, but there's still a lot of risk in this company. So if you want to target a high yield... Risky approach, SSE. Yeah. If you want to take a, a more average uh, yeah, pedestrian I, yield, but not pedestrian in the grand scheme of, of yields that that, are, that other indices offer around the world, what you talk about in your, your alpha piece is that the FTSE 100 looks pretty good. Yeah, I mean, FTSE 100 is paying out about 4.6% on a trailing basis. So how, how do you play this? What's the easiest way it's to play Buy a tracker. Buy a tracker. Yeah, you can. John, John Bogle, RIP, would would be yeah, uh, yeah, would be I mean, uh, very happy with that. Yeah, I mean John Bogle, who died just over a week ago. I mean, his legacy is that he made stock market investing cheap and accessible to lots of people, which is you know a very good thing to have done. And you see it in the products that you could buy if you're an income seeker. You can buy. Vanguard, FTSE 100, UK tracker, it'll pay you on the current run rate 4.6% dividend and it'll cost you 0.09%. Virtually nothing. No stamp duty mm-hmm. to pay when you buy it because ETFs don't pay stamp duty. Very narrow spreads. Why, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of very honourable and capable income fund managers out there, but why would you bother? That's a very good question. It's actually a question that, um, that that's quite pertinent in, in respect of the editorial, which Rosie has written this week. She insisted because she wanted to uh, get into the uh, fund list debates, which has been raging on Twitter. Have you got, have you got yeah. your, uh, put your oar in there? For I have, yeah. Ah, ah. yeah. Couldn't resist. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I noticed. Um, so, so, we've had, so we've got a lot of fund lists out there. Hargreaves yeah. have revamped theirs. Uh, Interactive Investor have launched a new one. Yeah. We have our own top 100 funds. Yeah. Mostly... Looking at active uh, fund managers, but yeah, I mean, Ro- Rosie likes them. Is the gist of the editorial because they're a good starting point. What do you think? Uh, uh, <laughs> you don't have to I, agree. No, Phil. no, I don't. I don't. I don't agree. I, um, I think. I think the start. I'm not. I'm not advo- You know, for lots of people who not prepared to put the the effort into research companies, it's just so cheap to to put together a reasonably well constructed portfolio tracker funds for very little money is there anything to be said for active fund management i mean yeah. you know some, yeah. there are some good managers out there yeah. they've done very well over the years yeah the the advantage of being active in very very simple terms is that you can cut out the rubbish because when you 
when you buy a tracker fund, you're buying everything, warts and all. And a lot of those companies, you probably wouldn't touch with a barge pole. So the skip, unfortunately, the way the fund management industry is set up against appraising managers against benchmarks, you get a lot of fund managers who don't deviate away from the benchmark. So they end up, because it's because of the career risk involved yes. of underperforming. Yeah, something that Chris Dillow has written about yeah. a lot. And, and, so, and one of the advantages that private investors have. Yeah, absolutely. And so they end up buying stuff. If you ask them really honestly, they wouldn't want to. They wouldn't want to buy. And therefore, this is the advantage of the DIY investor, the private investor, and what I would call a proper active fund manager. Yeah, a conviction fund manager. Yeah, and there are there are some out there. You know, I think it's very easy to bash fund managers, but if you can find the right fund manager, and very importantly find them working in a firm, particularly the small boutiques, where they're given the freedom to take a long-term active view, then these these are the kind of funds that I think people should have a look at. Mm. So you have to be smart with your active management decision. It's almost like stock picking, of, but of people it instead, is. Of, it instead is. of stocks. You know, we, we've had a lot of people bang on for years about, about closet trackers and you know, sadly, the fund management industry has become some great big asset gathering industry where, you know, it knows it's getting 0.75% on most of its active funds and it wants a bigger pot of money to apply that 0.75% to do so. So it keeps hold of that by not underperforming where, well, or not underperforming by too much. How do you do that? You hug the index. Whereas the sort of smaller boutique managers take a better view. The problem with the boutique managers, and there are quite a few sort of high-profile funds that have done very well, is that you start off small, you start doing well, that brings in more money. The more money you have, the bigger that drag tends to be on performance because you can't be as nimble. So it's it's almost like momentum investing, that sometimes like with a fund it's better to travel than arrive. You sort of hitched a ride of the sort of nimble fund manager that's started off small and going, you know, getting bigger and bigger. But once they get to a certain size, it gets more and more difficult for them to beat the market. That, that would beg the question of whether, you know, when, when funds do hit a certain size, whether you should perhaps jump ship. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, let's not name any names. Let's not name any names, <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm sure our astute uh, listeners will know who we might be referring to. Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, talking of momentum, let's, let's, let's head into the realm of uh, individual stocks and shares. You've written about quite a few companies this week. We've had quite a few up updates yeah it's it's kind of a, a difficult business picking stocks and shares you do feel for active managers in that respect particularly the ones that are trying to identify alpha yeah momentum is uh something that, that that we obviously pay attention to a company that has had great momentum lost that momentum maybe about to find it again yeah. it's fever tree yeah who you wrote about today yeah yeah the company for me is um I think one of if you just look at it on numbers and you shouldn't look at things just on numbers but if you actually look at what it produces in terms of financial returns profits return on investment this is one of the outstanding companies listed on the London Stock Exchange without doubt and it's also got the ability to grow and it's growing 
incredibly strongly, earning very high profit margins, very high returns. In fact, it has very little money invested because it doesn't have drink manufacturer, it doesn't have bottling plants, it's outsourced them to third parties. So it's got very little money sunk into physical assets. It's almost like a sort of dot-com with a product. Yeah, it's I, mean, kind of, it's, I mean, it's, it's not... as dot-com as you can get in the real world in terms well, of... Well... You know, you know what I mean, though. I know I mean, what you mean, but it's... it's a, a leverageable model that... It's, actu- it's actually copied a very fine example in the same industry by, by Nichols, the, the makers Love. of Vimto. Company I've always liked. Uh, yeah, and they do exactly the same thing. And when they did that, their fortunes changed. And so Fever Tree has hit, hit a sweet spot, and it, it is a brilliant example of a company kicking out an incumbent, Schweppes, Schweppes, and becoming deeply entrenched with consumers just at the right time that the stuff that they're drinking, gin, and it is mainly gin, is booming, and in the UK. And so everything's aligning for Fever Tree at the moment. It's business model, it's products, it's market. And... You know, the shares have been incredibly popular. They have the share price. I mean, you look at the share price graph and it absolutely soared. And it's always been very, very pricey share. And we saw that come back. You know, these shares peaked at about 40 quid. Well, they halved. They halved. Yeah, they did. They they did pretty much halve, yeah. And because I think people rightly say, look, how long can this last? And I think, you know, I have a lot of admiration for this company. And it's it's a, it's a triumph of operations, of marketing, of branding. And it's doing incredibly well. The problem that Fever Tree managers have is that its share price is so highly rated that the expectations that are baked into that share price in terms of what it has to deliver to justify that share price are very, very high. And my, you know, the title of the article I've written this morning is like, you know, share the sales are fizzing, but they need a broader base. So essentially, the vast majority of sales growth in this business is coming from the UK and from gin and, and from and, gin and tonic, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and from t- so from from tonic, and it needs to broaden its base. And the key to broadening its base is the biggest spirits market in the world, which is America. And that is a slightly different challenge because I think that Fever Tree has been quite fortunate in the UK in that Schweppes has become pretty complacent with its positioning, its brand, its product innovation and has been very, very slow to respond, even though it has brought out a premium product itself, but it's invisible. See, I find it quite strange because, you know, I mean, Fever Tree's dominant area is not it's not supermarkets where you know the vast majority of shelf space is still own brand but but i would, it, I would actually disagree well, with no, you on no, that. no 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 i mean going to tesco it's own brand it's own brand you, you go into sainsbury's it's all fever tree well maybe that says something about yeah. where i shop uh <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. um but no in the in the on trade yeah you get fever tree yeah you ask for gin and tonic you get a fever tree yeah that all comes through dis- distributors or, you know, certainly reps going into pub chain owners and having to oust Schweppes. Yeah. So so Schweppes had no idea this was happening for years. Uh, I find it mind-boggling. I mean, Schweppes is still, by volume, the biggest selling tonic water in the UK. Fever Tree, by value, is higher because Fever Tree is three, three and a bit times more expensive 
per litre than, than Schweppes is. Maybe I'm going into the wrong pubs. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you look at you know, if you look at the Investors Chronicle pub, they don't sell anything but but Fever Tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What uh, about Weatherspoons? What do they sell? I don't know. I've not been in one for ages. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine it might be at Webb's place. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine so. I mean, being the the gin and tonics in uh, from a, I'm reliably informed from a, a Weatherspoons friend of mine that that gin and tonics in in uh, in Weatherspoons are about four pound fifty for a double. Yeah, that's not. That's, and that's, and you can't like, get you can't get there by putting Fever Tree tonic in it. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I guess the, I guess the big problem then that Fever Tree faces. So it's had a really good good run at the UK, stolen a, a, a really strong market position. Yeah. US is a very different market. Gin's not their thing. Uh, brown spirits. Yeah. Um, and and brown spirits, you need Coke or ginger ale to go with it. Yeah. That's not Fever Tree's strong area. Well, they've got they have products in both. Yeah, they're not that. Yeah, I was going to say. And I think I, well. I, <laughs> The cola, I've tried the cola, and my own personal point of view is is that there's nothing special about it. And we're, about, we, uh, we're talking something different. I mean, you know, in terms of competitors, I mean, it is Coca-Cola. Is it still Coca-Cola Schweppes? Uh, it was for many years. Yeah, uh, I think Coke are pretty heavily involved with Schweppes, yeah. Uh, Certainly in the UK. But it's not, it's not their core. Schwe- uh, tonic is not their core product. Coca-Cola is their core product. They're not going to let that go quite It's their own product. It's the home market. It's an iconic brand. You know, if people go and order a bourbon, bourbon and Coke, are they going to put Fever Tree Cola in it? And you know, Fever big Tree, challenge, big marketing Fe- budget. Uh, you'd Fever Tree is virtually unknown in America. This is this is this thirty-five million pounds of sales. Sounds a lot. Yeah, in in a in a big uh, that that can contrasts with nearly one hundred and thirty-five million of sales in the UK. So the opportunity on paper. Is massive for Fever Tree, and it signed a deal with uh, an exclusive deal with a distributor to try and get its products in into bars. But I think it 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 faces a much tougher challenge of cracking this market. There's a lot of upside. You know, you're only at 35 million. You get you you know you, if you grow that to 200 million, then you know you've you've got upside in profits there. It's one of the it's one of those old things. That, oh yeah, we only need a small small bit of a big market. Yeah, I've always been very nervous. About yeah, those me sort of too. Stories. Me too. And I and I, and I think you are dealing with a very difficult market. You know, if you look at Diageo, you look at Diageo's figures on on gin, and it's pretty much a UK thing. That's not really happening in the American market. There is, you know, the premiumization of of bourbon there, and vodkas, and so on. And I think, I uh, you know, do I expect Fever Tree to be able to grow its sales in America? Yeah, but it's not. You know, it's growing at less than half, you know, pretty much half the rate in the UK. And I think the next year or two are crucial. Let It's got a distribution agreement in place. Let's see how it gets on. The thing is, the share price, unless you're a momentum trader, if you're a momentum trader, you might ride this wave. If you're a serious long-term investor in this company, then what it does in the, does in America over the next few years matters. And I think it's a very tough task. Yeah, I I, I would tend to agree. Um, but hey, there's a lot of supporters of this share still. So uh, and I guess and it's... they deserve every success. You know, yeah. they've they've stuck with it. A lot of you know people have stuck with it, seen it on the way down, the way up. And um, who's to say this company is very good at confounding the skeptics? I've got no problem with this business whatsoever. It's a brilliant business. 
I actually I have a lot of sympathies that the pressure that's been put on it by the valuation that invest, stock market investors have put on it, that's the issue. Do they care? I mean, you know, no, they, it's, they, it's they, often uh, said. Like, I think you know, the owners of Fever Tree don't care at all. I mean, they, you can see that they've offloaded loads of shares. Well, they, they, they get, they, absolutely. But I mean, you know, it's often said, you know, com- management shouldn't run a company for its share price. But some do. Uh, and, and, you know, often management incentives are skewed for that to be the case, which Paul Jackson has talked about in his column again this week. But but do they care? Are they running it that way? I think way? they should care. I think every management should care about what the share price is implying. But if the share price has got to silly levels and that's a momentum thing and, you know, and, and you've yeah. not really done anything to kind of encourage No, that, but you don't then... do it the other way either. You don't say, well, actually, you think you're all getting a bit carried away. When do you ever hear a management come out and say, oh, you get? I think people are getting a bit carried away here. There's no way that we can deliver the growth that's implied in our share price. That's just very brutally honest and actually very naive to even think that a company would come out and say that because we know that the world doesn't work like that. But they that. don't have to say it. But, but equally, <laughs> equally, in their day-to-day management of the business, it shouldn't be the first thing on their minds. No. No. And, and, and I would hope that in the case of Fever Tree, they think, you don't well... See, you don't see many man- many managers buying large chunks of shares in Fever Tree. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, then then, then, then surely they are saying that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, think you see, I think you've seen some non-execs go in and, um, and buy a few, but certainly the, the, the two founding owners have been... Only selling shares, really, largely. Mm. It could still, if it cracks America, then this share is probably still going to do quite well. Yeah, I guess. Who knows? But you know, if you're an investor, you know, I know, I know, some people like to think that valuation doesn't matter. In the short term, I agree, it doesn't. You know, if you're on a momentum trade, it doesn't matter. If you got this and you sip your ISA, and you're looking at it to compound, it's done a good job for you so far. But, you know, I, I don't think it does any harm to sort of try and take a step back and look at what it might have to do to keep on delivering for you. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's turn to your alpha report this week. Quite a few companies you've updated there. Uh, we've got Connect Group, Struggling. Yeah. Strix, Kettles. Another famously British drink, tea, there at the, uh, the core of that story. Uh, AJ Bell, interesting, uh, in the context of our debate around fund lists. Yeah, do you get, do you get the valuation of AJ Bell? I don't know, I, can't, I haven't even looked at it, to be honest. What, it's on about 35, 36 times earnings. What's Hargreaves on these days? About 31, 32. That's, that's the answer, then, isn't it? There, uh... But you see, what, what's interesting in you know, AJ Bell is that this, this is something that we, I got invo- we've been involved with on Twitter. And. Um, a few few of us on Twitter and um, Mark Dampier from from Hargreaves Lansdowne has has sort of been involved as well. And the, the whole issue with this industry is the very interesting subject of platform fees, mm. which we had quite publicly discussed what a week or two ago between a sort of public spat between Terry Smith and um, Hargreaves Lansdowne, and. You know, the profitability of Hargreaves Lansdowne and to a lesser extent AJ Bell is highly sort of dependent on these platform fees on open-ended funds or unit trusts. And they are immensely profitable. And I, I, I think this is a major challenge for both these companies to face for the next few years because if you have an investor investing in shares investment trusts exchange traded funds 
you know, the flat fee on AJ Bell is capped at a hundred quid a year plus VAT. But if you've got two hundred and fifty thousand pounds in open ended funds, it's six hundred and twenty five quid, which is punchy. Punchy, and obviously, uh, I the, mean, what, and we talk about charges a lot. I mean, that that eats into your returns. Yeah, um, but the other thing as well is these companies are also geared plays on the value of stock markets mm-hmm. because this is what affects the value of the assets under management. And there's no doubt that over the last 10 years, the the bull market in shares has been extremely helpful to the earnings of these companies. So I, I, I think that, you know, you've got these businesses that are incredibly highly rated. They're extremely profitable, almost too much though. If and this is, I think that's probably Terry Smith's argument, is that these companies are doing something, I think he's referred to them as a, as distributors. And I'm sure the companies that argue that they do a lot more than distribute. But Hargreaves Lansdowne, profit margin is 65%. AJ Bell's is what, pushing 40%. There's not many businesses out there that do that. And... This is this is one of the key lessons for investors is is that you you have to get behind the numbers and what's driving the numbers and what's clearly driving the numbers of these businesses is a, is a elevated level of financial markets and a charging structure that a lot of people don't agree with mm. or an increasing number of people don't agree with. But you don't have a lot of choice. There is no. Not, they 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 have a, a stranglehold. Well, you have markets. a choice. You have a choice in the sense that you don't have to own open-ended funds. Yeah. You you have a choice in that you can choose not to go down, which is a shame because it's almost like you're well, you are you're being discriminated against through pricing. If I want to buy, I can either own an investment trust where I pay virtually nothing, or I can buy an equivalent unit trust and I'm going to get stung for 0.25 or 0.45 on it. Mm. What am I going to buy? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so uh, yeah, one to uh, a little industry, sub-industry to watch. Here. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, again, just going back to fever tree, you know, high ratings are high expectations about the ability to grow profits in the future. The investor needs to try and get behind and say, look, can they do that? Yeah. What are the risks? Yeah, I mean, and, and in aggregate terms, high, high ratings mean lower, lower future returns. They usually. can do, yeah. They yeah. often especially, do. Especially if they don't deliver. Absolutely. Let's see. Anyway, um, thank you, Phil. Lots more in the report this week. And there's lots more in the magazine. It is the week of our uh, famous annual FTSE 350 review. Uh, It's a 40-page supplement. We look at every sector and a lot of the companies within it uh, to really kind of set the expectations for for what we we see from from each industry that that the market represents over the year ahead. It's it's a huge piece of work. It's been going on for weeks and and we're finally done with it. So so good news there. But it's it's a real uh, interesting read. Uh, We've got a feature this week which is quite interesting from uh, John Rosier on the uh, UK stock market, UK stock challenge. I know you've got a team in there, Phil. I have you? a team in there. Yeah. Uh, fantasy stocks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great fun. Great fun. Yeah. What what uh, what John's looking at is the kind of companies that people have have invested in yeah. uh, in, in this challenge because you can get lots of detail out of the uh, yeah. the the, uh, the the tool they've put together and it's yeah it's just a really interesting little bit of sort of behavioural analysis there. Yeah, it's good good piece. Uh, yeah, I quite I quite like it. It's interesting and uh, you know the winning companies are often the ones that you you perhaps least expect. Um, yeah. Or at least it's hard to pick them. 
but there you go. The liquid micro caps. Yeah, in the oil and gas industry. <laughs> um, lots of uh, uh, comment as, uh, other than Phil this week. I say Paul Jackson looking at uh, the, the the business at Debenhams and and, and how that relates to uh, management incentives. Uh, Dillo, Simon have uh, have all contributed quite a lot to that section this week. Next week is Simon Simon's bargain shares. Another big big uh, big addition. I think he's written twenty pages next next uh, next week. It's it's and it, and actually his bargain shares portfolio did fantastically well last year in a very difficult market. All the usual news, a few results this week. Sex Focus, Algae Halls, uh, shares that have it all screen. Um, yeah, pick it up. The FTSE 350 review in all good news agents. Four pound ninety, or get online and subscribe. And we'll be back next week. Thank you.